0: episode 13 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. In today's episode, we catch up with Dan Infault, a man who needs no introduction. Dan has revolutionized techniques for hunting bedded bucks, mobile hunting tactics, and he's been gracious enough to share his incredible wealth of knowledge with thousands of other hunters via the Hunting Beast Forum, which Dan founded. Dan also co-founded HuntingBeastGear.com, a company that develops and produces mobile hunting gear specifically designed for mobile hunters. I personally owe nearly all my bow hunting success since 2014 to the lessons I've learned from Dan and the other members on the Hunting Beast Forum. In this podcast, we discuss early season tactics. Specifically, Dan and I discuss common features of early season bedding areas, if hunting field edges is ever the correct play, early season food sources, hot weather hunting and its effects on buck movement, early season rubs and scrapes and how Dan uses that intel, trail camera strategies, and tactics to attack new terrain or new states during the early season. I want to start out today's podcast with an important public service announcement. Today is August 26, 2021, and I have had the unfortunate pleasure of dealing with a taxidermist here in Montana for the past 21 months that is possibly the most unethical business person I have ever dealt with. I want to save you guys that are listening from ever enduring this experience, the taxidermist's name is Don Keever. that's D-O-N-K-E-E-V-E-R, and his taxidermy shop name is Antlers and Anglers Taxidermy, and it's located at 2905 Grelk Lane in Billings, Montana. I'd like everyone that's listening to pull out your phone right now and enter this phone number, 406-855-7655. That's 406-855-7655, and I want you to title that contact in your phone, Do Not Use Ever. Let me elaborate on the reasons why you as a hunter who values his time and his money should never use Antlers and Anglers Taxidermy Shop. I'll try to keep this short, but please bear with me. I dropped off my largest whitetail buck to date in November of 2019 to Antlers and Anglers Taxidermy. This was a 141-inch deer with a 22-inch neck. I explicitly stated to Don that turnaround time and honesty were important considerations when selecting a taxidermist. Don stated at this time that his average turnaround time was 12 months. When I pressed him for the absolute worst case scenario, he told me 18 months. That was the absolute worst case. These are his words, not mine. When I dropped off the deer, I paid Don his requested deposit of $400 on what was a total price of $595 for the completed mount. The following year, in September of 2020, I shot a 10-point whitetail buck in Montana. Since 12 months had not elapsed since I took Don the first buck, I took him this buck to be mounted as well. In October of 2020, I also shot a pronghorn in Montana, and I took that to Don to be mounted as well. I paid Don the $400 deposit for each mount, totaling $1,200 total for all three mounts. November of 2020, 12 months after I initially dropped off the first mount, I called Don for the first time to get a status update on the progress of the initial deer that I dropped off. Don stated that the tannery he used, which he told me is named the Wildlife Gallery Tannery located in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, was running behind due to COVID-19 and that it would be two or three more months before my mount was completed. Fast forward three months to February 2021, a full 15 months after I initially dropped the deer off. I called Don for a second time to inquire about the progress of my deer mount. Don told me, almost verbatim, the same story that the Wildlife Gallery Tannery had not returned 2019 capes yet, and that it would be another two to three months before my mount would be completed. Fast forward three months to May of 2021, a full 18 months after dropping off the first deer. I called Don for a third time for a status update, and he told me again, surprise, almost verbatim, the same story that it would be two to three more months At this point, Don had exceeded what were, in his words, his initially promised worst-case scenario of 18 months. I informed him in May of 2021 that I'd be coming to a shop to pick up my three skull plates and my capes. Don stated that my initial whitetail cape from 2019 had finally came back from the tannery, but my antelope cape and my other deer cape were still not back. On May 6, 2021, I traveled to Don's shop and retrieved my three skull plates and one whitetail cape. The cape was in a bag labeled number 975, which was the invoice number. My skull plate was also labeled number 975. I took the cape and the skull plate to a much more reputable taxidermist based out of my original home state of Michigan. After I dropped off that cape and my skull plate, the taxidermist in Michigan informed me that the cape I received from Don measured only 19 inches. Now, if you recall earlier in the story, the deer that I shot had a neck measurement of 22 inches. This was clearly not my original cape. Not once during any of our interactions did Don ever indicate I would not receive my original cape. When I confronted him, he stated that my cape had been damaged by bugs beyond repair while at the tannery. Now, who knows what the truth is, but two facts are certain. First, I did not receive my original cape back. Second, Don only disclosed that I received a much smaller replacement cape after I called him out on it. He never offered to discount my taxidermy work or offer me any refund. When I picked up my skull plates and cape, I asked Don for a partial refund because he had done no work on my initial whitetail buck. I brought that cape to him, skinned, face and all, and I would never received that cape back as just mentioned. On my second whitetail buck, he skinned the faces of the whitetail buck and the antelope and sent the hides out for tanning. I asked Don for $600 of my $1,200 deposit back, which seemed more than fair to me considering he had done basically no work. Don refused to give me a single send back. Not only did he try and pass off an inferior whitetail cape that was never mine to begin with and not complete any work, he also charged me $1,200 to do that. One final point. You might be thinking to yourself, hey, maybe the Wildlife Gallery Tannery in Mount Pleasant, Michigan is that far behind. Well, I want to tell you, I know for a fact they are not. How do I know this, you might ask? Because the taxidermist I took my 2019 buck to after getting it back from Don uses the exact same tannery. In fact, I shot a whitetail buck in November of 2020 in Kansas. My taxidermist in Michigan received the cape back in April of 2021, only five months later. Again, I want to reiterate that today is August 26, 2021, and I have still not received my whitetail or antelope capes from 2020 back from Don. Although he claims that my antelope cape has now been delivered to his shop, I have a hard time believing that this is even my cape after what has happened to date. Bottom line, avoid antlers and anglers taxidermy at 2905 Grok Lane in Billings, Montana. Again, put this number in your phone as do not ever use. That's Don Kiever at 406-855-7655. I'd encourage you to tell any friends that might ever travel to Montana to do the same. For anyone that might doubt the veracity of my story, I have almost the entire history of events in text message. If anyone would like to see those messages to corroborate this story and the facts of, please feel free to contact me. One last time, beware Antlers and Anglers Taxidermy in Billings, Montana and Don Kiever. Guys, if you haven't already stopped by Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com to outfit your mobile hunting setup with some silencing gear, you're missing out. The hunting season is fast approaching and the time to upgrade your mobile hunting setup is now. There's not a better product on the market for eliminating unwanted noise. Stealth Outdoors manufactures an incredibly durable product for a great value. Designed from the ground up with a mobile hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Head on over to www.stealthoutdoors.com to place your order. Today's podcast is brought to you by Backwoods Mobile Gear at www.backwoodsmobilegear.com. Backwoods Mobile Gear produces an array of products to completely customize your mobile hunting setup. Backwoods Mobile Gear's product line includes climbing aiders like their Multi-Step Aider and Versa Aider. Climb higher using the same amount of climbing sticks with the climbing aiders at a fraction of the weight of an additional climbing stick. Backwoods Mobile Gear also offers a variety of Amsteel rope solutions from daisy chains for climbing sticks to Amsteel gear hangers. Replace those bulky straps and hunt-ruining metal cam buckles with buckleless and lightweight am steel products from Backwoods Mobile Gear. Check out Backwoods Mobile Gear at www.backwoodsmobilegear.com if you want your setup to be lighter, to take you higher, and to keep your gear tighter. Guys, what do you get when you combine a prototype machinist who also happens to be a big-buck serial killer named Dan Infault with state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet, you get huntingbeastgear.com. Huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products including beast gear, climbing sticks, optimized with weight-reduction holes, non-staggered inline stacking, and double steps, all in a 2.2-pound package, including the fastening strap. And new for the 2021 season, huntingbeastgear.com has released the game-changing Beast Gear Hang-On Tree Stand, Designed from the ground up to be the ultimate hang-on solution, with four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform and comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear stand is finished with a durable anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details and to place your order, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com. Now, on to the podcast. So, Dan, how's it going today?
1: Good. How are you doing?
0: Can't complain. Uh, First off, I want to thank you for calling in today. I know you're an extremely busy guy, and I definitely appreciate you carving out some time to answer my questions. And I also know everyone that follows you and listens to this podcast will appreciate it, too. So, thanks again, Dan. Yeah, no problem. So on our last podcast episode where you joined me, we covered a lot of topics, but today I want to have a discussion centered completely on early season tactics. But before we get started on that, I actually have a few questions on what I'm going to call Dan Infault current events. And I want to start out with Dan, you recently went to Deerfest in West Bend, Wisconsin. I wasn't able to make it to the show, so I was hoping you could give me a quick recap of your show experience and how the Hunting Beast gear stand and Hunting Beast gear in general was received at the show.
1: Oh, it was uh, overwhelming. It was great. Um, The show itself actually kind of sucked. They didn't advertise it real well. They didn't have any big names there. And I think a lot of that had to do with they were questioning what was going on with COVID, so they didn't spend a lot of money. I think next year would be a much better show again to come back around. Um, But it was low numbers, but even with it being low numbers, the majority of the crowd was by us and by tethered. And then it was just like a trickle crowd everywhere else. So it was, it was kind of cool to see, um, that we were real, well received, but I mean, it's in my backyard too. So, um, most people in this vicinity know who I am and, and, uh, like to come over and chat and see the equipment and stuff. It was cool. We, we, um, uh, put the stand on display. We let people, um, climb in it in, tr- in a tree and, uh, let them uh, look at them all they wanted. And, uh, I just really didn't sell anything. I just, uh, let the guys do that. And I stood around talking and, uh, just meeting people, which is what I like to do.
0: I was going to say, that sounds like a lot more fun than selling.
1: Right. 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 Um, yeah, we, uh, sold way, way, way more than we thought we would. That's awesome. Yeah. We pretty much sold out, uh, everything that we had reserved for the show. And, uh, Actually, sold ahead a bit. So now we got to uh, work our butts off to catch back up. It's one of those items where you got to get it in your hands to really appreciate it. You know, guys, you know, they hear about it, they see it, they don't really know. But when they touch it, feel it, and, um, you know, see how it works, then they're, uh, they're really excited. It's a lot
0: of the feedback I've been seeing online is the same thing like, was pretty excited about it. And then people get it in, delivered, start to use it, and then they really love it.
1: Yeah. You know, our uh, our competition cut the length of the stand down real short and uh, cut the post down real short to get the lightest weight. And that's just like, that's one bullet point. You need a, a, a whole package. I mean, we didn't want to have the lightest stand. We just wanted to have a light stand that was great. So you got to have enough enough room that you can turn around and shoot behind the tree. Um, you got to have enough room that you're, when you're sitting down, you can stand up easily and that it's not uncomfortable that your knees aren't in your chin and i think we've accomplished all of that and that's why it took us so long to produce the final product we made sure it was perfect
0: yeah obviously you guys spent a lot of time on r&d and prototype and i followed along and saw you went through several iterations and a lot of testing in the field before you released the final product so i ought to give people a lot of reinsurance and, and that and you guys went through tma as well correct
1: yeah we got all the testing done for tma and uh we're in the process of um, certification, but all the testing came back positive. That's awesome. We passed everything with flying colors.
0: Well, speaking of B-Scare, I'm actually interested in a stand, but right now I'm, I'm kind of on the edge of the weight limit with my uh, boots and my camo and my bow, so I need to drop a few LBs. But that brings me to the next topic. And I've noticed you've been making your health a priority lately. And what inspired that change? How are you progressing? And what are you going to do differently to maintain that change?
1: Well. Um- Uh, Number number one, um, my doctor's really been on my ass for a couple of years and it's been getting worse and worse with my weight and, uh, you know, and other health concerns uh, around my weight. And really, I think the the deciding factor kind of was I want to be a good role model. And, uh, you know, if I set my mind to something, I just do it. So I just decided I was going to get back to swim. And I'm really glad I did because I feel a lot better than I thought I would. I, I feel like a new man. You know taking thirty pounds off my uh, back is really something
0: yeah that's great to hear what uh what's been the hardest part about adopting a healthier lifestyle? I mean, I know you're busy right we we kind of open with that you're super busy, and uh I know one of the things that and I can relate to on and off is drinking those darn energy drinks, so that's probably comes into play with you know being busy and trying to make the most out of your day what's what's been the most difficult part
1: for you yeah with what the energy drinks um It bothered me for about nine days. The sugar intake that bothered me for about nine days. Then after the nine days, it was real easy. But uh, right now, I'm going through a struggle because you, you know, I got to a point where I wasn't hungry anymore. But I knew I wasn't uh, dieting correctly. That I was just trying to rapidly lose weight. So now that I got down to a point, I went to a dietitian and uh, consulted. Uh, And it was kind of nice because my company paid me to do it. So might as well take the free money and get the advice. So. The dietitian uh, determined that uh, I'd gotten to the point where I was starting to lose muscle, it like my body was burning muscle rather than fat, um, because I wasn't because I'd only eat once a day. But even once a day, I was never hungry anymore. So now I had to go to a small snack in the morning, and then eat in the evening, and uh, periodically fast. And there's something about when you eat more regular, your hunger comes back and your uh, cravings come back but it's something I can't work through. I just drink a water every time I'm hungry.
0: Yeah, like I said, I'm a, I'm a bigger guy as well, so I definitely understand the struggles there, and that's part of the reason I was asking, but the other reason is it's good to see people making positive change in their life, and I'm sure there's plenty of people listening that are looking to do the same thing, so as far as you being a good role model, bravo there.
1: Well, well one thing, you know, um, for an incentive for the people listening is, um, you know, like uh, this weekend I went up to northern minnesota went through the swamps and i put on like um eight or nine miles in one day on really rough terrain and uh not winded at all not tired or nothing where when i was heavier i would have been winded you probably saw me winded in a lot of videos
0: yeah it's hard when you're carrying around the extra pounds for sure and you don't notice it i'm kind of in the same process right now trying to take some weight off because the western hunting especially it's never affected me but i'm getting older i'm 38 now and starting to slow down a little bit and with the extra weight before I could just will my way through it. And this is probably this year, maybe last year was the first year I started noticing it having a negative impact. So time to make a change. Yeah, good. Well, moving on from that one other, well, maybe one or two other current event topics here. What are the odds we're going to see Dan and fall involved in the 2021 public land challenge? And if that's a yes, can you give any details or is that all under wraps still?
1: I am going to be involved, and Joe's going to be involved again. Other than that, uh, I don't know much other than it's going to fall around rut. So uh, I believe it's going to be a rut challenge.
0: Well, that would be exciting because you guys have been hunting some pretty tough times of the year previously. I know you're Michigan early season, which that can be tough. And then you were there in Pennsylvania, what, like the middle of October?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was mid-October. I was getting a little bit of like uh, the tinge of the rut is what I was seeing on the Pennsylvania Challenge. This one will be full-blown.
0: Well, that'll be exciting to see what a group of killers like you guys can do on uh, public land during the rut. i
1: got high hopes for that. Sounds like a blast, like usual. And uh, we also got our uh, uh, challenge of of our own with the beast. We're going to do something. We wanted to do a Big Woods challenge. no plots, no crops, no no problem kind of thing. <laughs> okay. So we're we're doing that at the uh, end of uh, September. I believe someone's coming from the hunting public, and we got um, a couple guys from Exodus and uh, a couple smaller filmers coming and uh, the Beast guys. Well,
0: that'd be awesome.
1: So it won't be put out like the hunting publics because uh, we don't have the capability of uh, editing it that fast but we plan on putting it out as soon as we're done. It'll be like a four day deal, but it should be pretty fun. Um, we're not disclosing the location. We don't want to get flooded with people, but I think it's going to be a really cool event.
0: Yeah. You should, uh, go back to wherever that bear bait buck was and just shoot that.
1: (laughs) I should, I'd like to do a duo over there, but uh, I don't believe he exists anymore. No, no. We, we talked about that a
0: little bit. That's, uh, maybe, maybe his son's around there, grandson. Well, D- Dan, last non-tactic question uh, before we get into the early season tactics. Last year, we talked about your bow and your shooting, and you said you're going to make that a priority this year. And I saw recently on social media that you're now shooting a prime bow. So give me your impressions of that and why you made the switch and how you're liking the prime so far.
1: Uh, before last season, uh, Steve Tagle, uh the retired owner of uh, Forge Bows. Built me a bowl as a gift he was not he didn't even have a bowl company anymore, and he built me a, a custom bowl to custom fit me and I loved that bowl, but I beat the hell out of it and uh and it had some damage to it and stuff and uh I was going to get it reworked and prime approached me, and I liked their company and uh talking to them um they kind of have the same kind of um uh, ethics and morals that I have. And some of the other big companies have uh, uh, approached me too, and have been approaching me for years. And I've just kind of pushed them off um, because I don't like the way they manage their businesses. So, you know, you can kill a deer with any bow out there, literally. I mean, you can make any bow shoot really well. I mean, people are doing it with stick and string, right? Yeah. They're doing it with, uh, you know, long bows. But for me, it's important to work with a good company if I'm gonna, if I'm going to get something because I'm trying to set an example. And I really like Prime and uh, the people. And the bow shot really well for me. You know, I, I told them if I was going to shoot one of their bows, I wanted a long one. I, I didn't make many guarantees, but uh, I um, they flew all the way out here. Let me try them out. And uh, they shot very well for me. I mean, right out of the box when they set it for me, um, I have three arrows touching at 20 yards, which is better than I ever did with a forge.
0: Yeah, hard to argue with those kind of results
1: yeah they got something going where they got two cams on the top, two cams in the bottom, and the string splits, and it kind of keeps you from twisting your your wrist kind of like uh when you spin a bow tire and you i mean a bicycle tire and you try to turn it um so it kind of locks on target a little better, I think, so yeah I'm really happy with it And it's kind of cool and I've been shooting a lot of it, and I'm shooting really well, so uh, I'm uh excited to uh try it. There aren't too many companies that still make those uh, long axle to axle bows, um, and that's kind of what I like.
0: Yeah, you're t- taller guy, so that probably fits you a lot better.
1: Yeah, and my, you know, I, I'm uh, six foot one, but my arms match a, a twelve foot guy. My <laughs> knuckles drag on the ground. I think I'm part caveman or something.
0: <laughs> well, last thing here, Dan. I feel like I'm the big brother among my group of hunting friends, and I'm always reminding these guys, get your bows out, practice. So I'm going to big brother you right now, and we have a few weeks left before Wisconsin opener, and I know you're busy. We've talked about that. This will be the third time, but I want to challenge you on the podcast today to shoot your bow at least three times a week until the opener. What do you say? Absolutely. I'll do it. Awesome. That's great to hear. I know it's hard to make some things a priority, but it sounds like you're making some positive changes uh, around the health and the diet, and and I want to see arrows sticking out of big bucks this year.
1: Yeah, that's, that sounds great. <laughs> you, you know, uh, uh, an added incentive is that, you know I wear my uh, my life on my sleeve. I'm uh, in everybody's eyes, so I can't just not tell anybody when I shoot something or, or wound something. So um, I'm honest about that. And I really don't want to deal with the wrath because I'd feel bad about the deer and about what people are saying. So for me, that makes it more of a priority to really keep on target and keep shooting, you know?
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, let's talk about some early season tactics since that's just right around the corner. And I want to frame today's discussion in the context of September 1st through October 15th. Now, I know Wisconsin doesn't open – quite as early as September 1st, but you guys, what's your actual opener? It's like the second week or second Saturday? Of or
1: I believe this year it's going to be a little later. I think it's the 18th. Okay. I think it's the third Saturday or something like that.
0: Is that how they set the date?
1: I forget how they rationalize it. Yeah, it's some number of Saturdays. I think it's the third one. Um, and occasionally it falls as early as like the 10th or something. But this year it's the 18th I believe.
0: Now I'm in Montana now and they do the first Saturday, so same thing. It could be September 1st or as late as the 7th so it just varies well I know your early season starts with the postseason scouting and I'd like you to describe some of the most common features that you think make a specific bedding area a great early season bedroom and what have you noticed throughout the years that these early season beds have in common is it you know crops mast pressure all those something else what's a great early season setup for you
1: uh, early season uh, um, bedding is usually close to food. It's usually in, uh, you know, a cool, dark area or a little wet area. Um, like acorns are huge for me. If you've got acorns, it's pretty easy to uh, figure out where deer will be off of uh, uh, swamp islands, you know. That can be a, almost as good as the rut if you know what you're doing. And uh, nobody really takes advantage of it. You know, you you don't see hardly anybody out there when it's 80 degrees, you know. And I'll be seeing deer at like uh, 1 or 2 in the afternoon already. But they bed really close to food. And people who struggle with early season are usually using rug tactics or something. They're hunting at the food source or too far back. And another big uh, tragic mistake is guys will see them on the beans and they glass them on beans all summer. And right about the week before the opener, the beans start to yellow and the bucks go to a different food source, you know. The, the one good thing is is that the bedding comes back around to those spots again every year, same areas. So sometimes it takes a year or two to learn a, how deer use a certain area in the early season, but it repeats itself.
0: So two follow-up questions there, and this is something I noticed. So I don't have a lot of experience hunting in September. I lived in Michigan most of my life, and uh, they have an October 1st opener every year. So now in Montana, you know, I can hunt a whole month earlier, and – pressure is a lot lower so my first couple of hunts early September both of the last two years I've seen like pretty good bucks up and moving early I mean like three four five mm-hmm. o'clock super early so that's one thing that I heard you say seeing deer at one or two I noticed that too and then the second thing I wanted to discuss is you said and I've seen this too deer bedding extremely close to crop so how do you approach a hunt like that let's say as a hypothetical you've located uh, shooter buck, it's close to the crops, and your access is difficult. What are you doing, or how are you ensuring that you can get in there? Because you probably only have one, maybe two chances, right, on an early season before that pattern's gone. So, what are you doing to maximize your chances there?
1: Yeah, you got to act pretty quick. So for me, um if I've observed that buck, I try to keep observing them from a distance. And what I'll do is not just look at the buck and go, "Ah, cool, a shooter." I'm trying to determine where is he moving, why is he moving there, because they've usually got a specific location they're going to. They don't just come out of bedding and wander out into an open field and feed. If you watch, you seem to go to the same areas over and over again. I mean, obviously it varies, you know, or hunting would be easy, right? Right. But you'll see that there's a certain spot in the crop field they like to make it to, you know, whether to uh, it's better fertilized or, or what. And I'm gonna look for some vulner vulnerable way he's traveling that that I can I can kill him. I wanna look at the slope of the land, how's the thermal's going and I'm gonna do all this while I'm watching that deer. I think a lot of amateurs just stare at the deer and they're like, Oh, I gotta get a picture, I gotta you know, I gotta text my friends, you know, where I'm concentrating on what that is doing and where is my opportunity to kill it. So that's where I shine at that. So I'll look at some way to sneak in there. How can I use the terrain? How can I use the the landscape? Generally there's some way. You know, obviously um there's uh risks involved and, and uh some places are easier to kill one than others based on the terrain and stuff. And sometimes you screw up, sometimes you don't, but you just take your best shot. And you don't put all your eggs in that one basket, you know, unless it's uh, uh a world record or something. You um you get your, your pattern down but you don't just sit there every single day looking. You're also looking for other bucks. You're trying to develop other patterns. You're trying to, you know, get that down and uh, have a path into to kill another one too.
0: Yeah, it's good to have a plan B, plan C.
1: Right. I mean, if you think about it, everybody who um, looks at my wall of bucks thinks I go out and shoot a deer anytime I want. But generally, I put in a lot, a lot of days going after these deer. And every one of my skits, I really believe that I'm going to kill a big buck. How many of them do I kill? I don't kill one every time I go out. Oh, I do 80, 80, 90 sits in a year and maybe shoot one or two bucks. So it's really about you got to keep doing those uh, high percentage hunts. A lot of guys that are just starting out will uh, are just getting mobile and stuff. They'll, they'll see that one buck and they think, oh, I got this thing. They're already picking up the spot in their wall. <laughs> and they're not prioritizing that things go wrong. And that deer didn't get to be five years old by being stupid. He might look stupid walking in that field every day. <laughs> But, but he's not. <laughs> yeah. Like one thing I notice is they'll go to the lowest spot in the field and they come out right in the evening and your amateur is going to look at the wind direction. But that low spot, the reason he's coming out there is because he's coming out at the calm when all the thermals are dropping and he's winding the whole field from every direction because the thermals are dropping down there. So you have to have the thermals in mind and you're not going to beat him. So you have to look at where he goes to and how you can set up on that. Outside of those
0: thermals, I can certainly attest to early in my hunting career only thinking about wind direction and having it die off time after time after time at prime time. And then, the, like you said, that's when the thermals kick in, and that's usually right when the buck comes out. Right. One of the other things that I really like about you and your hunting style, it's something that has drawn me and kept me coming back to the beasts, is you're extremely adaptable and you'll probably use any tactic that, that you think will work. So, with that said, it's kind of taboo on the hunting beast, but can you give me an example or conditions where you might hunt a field edge in the early season and think that would be the right move?
1: If if I see a deer coming into that field, I'll do what the deer do. You you, you know what I mean? I might not, uh, I might say you're going to kill more bucks by, you know, getting between that field edge and the beds or something. But a lot of times they bed right on the edge of a field too. So how do you get in between that? So I'll sit on the edge of a field. If I'm watching a deer enter that field, and I can think of a few, few cases, especially in Iowa, where I've done just that. I can remember putting a, um, a trail camera in a field, and uh, it was to monitor night activity to see if there was deer in the bedding areas adjacent. But when I checked the camera, five days in a row, the same buck is standing there an hour before dark in front of the camera. I mean, only an idiot would go and go hunt in the woods where he's coming from. Right, he's coming there in daylight, and and, and the the thermals work, and the wind works. Why not just sit there and shoot him? And I did. You know, so I mean, it's not like locked in rules. There's nothing that's absolute in uh, deer hunting. Anybody who says the word "always" when they're talking about deer, has a screw loose. <laughs> yeah, there are no always. There's just percentages. You know, and for for me, it's about like. Reducing the percentage that something can fail as much as possible, you know narrowing that down and it's just basically common sense,
0: yeah, and the reason I asked that was well twofold the first is, like you said that a lot of times they're betting real close to the field, so maybe you can't even get in the woods and And two, you kind of alluded to it with Iowa's circumstances are different, and you don't always have highly pressured pounded public land even even if it is public land might not be super highly pressured or pounded so
1: right even the pressured stuff in iowa is different because like where i was hunting was um, real open terrain with small woodlots and there's not much bull hunting and most most people hunt with a gun and those deer have learned they're hunting with shotguns that their best spot is to bet out in an open field or on a tree edge where they can see everything so they're watching you from a distance that's where glassing comes in, in handy because if you figure out where they're betting and how they're watching the field or something, you can figure out, well, where can't they see and where can you get to, you know?
0: Yeah, for sure. And that's one of the things maybe I want to emphasize and kind of just thought about is you do a great job on the website and and all the guys on the, the forum of presenting the tactics and how they work. But I think something that we don't always talk about and, and, You've talked about it, like, uh, implied a lot, but people need to put on their thinking caps, right? These are the tactics, but you have to recognize the situation and and still apply the right tactic or or use your brain. It's not one-size-fits-all all all the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, let's talk about food sources, and you kind of alluded to this early, beans, yellowing, and talking about sitting acorns on islands. So we're talking early season, again, September to mid-October. Give me your three or four favorite early season food sources, and ideal setup would be in relation to bedding with with those type of food sources.
1: Clover's, acorns, alfalfa, and uh, there's a lot of plants that grow in the woods too that I recognize that they're like. But a lot of that's just found through scouting. Um, one thing I like to do in early season, if I don't have one glassed up, which is kind of hard around my place nowadays because there's so many people doing it, uh, especially on public. But I like to just spot-check spots, and I don't really worry about what the food is. They're eating something. Because a lot of times I don't even know what it is. It's just some plant that they're they're liking at that time. And there's a lot of green plants from to choose from uh, in early season. So I'll just go in and uh, look at a, uh, an area, check it out, see if there's some sign going into it. If there is, then I'll investigate a little further. If there's not, if I get in there, I don't see much sign right away. I turn around and go to another woodlot. And I found the more times I do that, the more often I just run into something really hot and set up on it and, and get action immediately. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the plant, but is that one plant that's got that orange flower? Um, we've talked about it on the Beast a little bit.
0: Jewelweed. Yeah, we talked about it. Orange jewelweed.
1: Yeah, yeah, that stuff. That stuff's on fire in September. <laughs> Deer love that. Yeah, that's a good tip there. And you can find that in cool, shady places, and it's not usually down low real close to bedding areas, you know. first snack out of the bed? Yeah. A lot of times those uh, older bucks in real heavy pressure areas like where I live or in a lot of Michigan like where you're from, they don't hit those fields even in early season in daylight. You know, they just hold back, you know. Right. It takes that aggressive move or finding that first food source in order to kill them.
0: So you're still doing boots-on-the-ground scouting then. Typically, when is that? Let's say, just for the sake of the discussion, your opener is going to be September 15th. When are you doing those spot checks to look for that browse and those clues, you know, boots-on-the-ground?
1: Day one. I don't usually do it too much earlier than that because you go in there and you spot check, and then you come back during the season, and they move because they smelled you. I mean, nobody's been in there all year. So I'm going into these spots and trying to beat anybody else in there. And then when I find a sign, I want to hunt that day.
0: Okay. Now that's a great tip because I think a lot of guys uh, and myself, before you said that answer, I would have thought maybe you are getting in there a week, 10 days, two weeks early, but you're waiting and trying to keep the area pristine before you move in and just move in as soon as the hunting season opens. Then,
1: Yep. You know, it's hard too, for a working guy. I mean, when you get out of work, you have only so much time. And if you get into the uh, routine of just going from spot to spot after work or on the weekends, you know you don't get that hot action. Every now and then you get near one of those places is hot, but when you find that hot sign, it's really good. Another thing I do is like I might have a destination, but I scout my way in, so I don't walk the beaten trail. As a matter of fact, I very rarely take the like trail back to where I'm hunting. I'll figure out a route where the wind is correct for a edge, and I'll follow that transition line back and just try to run into something hot and i've killed a lot of deer doing that yeah results
0: speak for themselves right shifting gears here a little bit when you've located a shooter buck whether that's via shining or trail cameras observation stands um, and now i'm talking about preseason again now so before you're doing the boots on the ground stuff what are the odds you know over your 30 some years of hunting experience what are the odds that a deer a shooter buck will stay on that pattern Let's say you find him, you know, in August or early September, what are the odds he's going to stay on that pattern when the season opens?
1: Probably about, I don't know, maybe one in 10. Okay. so um, It's not very good, but generally they're still in the area. You know, I've had them where you watch them all summer and then you go in there opening day and you shoot them and it's kind of like, well, okay. I, you know, it's not the most exciting hunt that worked, but most of the time I go in there, it doesn't work and then you have to shift and. Or they start shifting and you kind of lose them right before season. Then you got to go in there and move. And I've always said if we open September 1st, I'd kill a hell of a lot more deer. Because usually right before the season that the shift is. And it has nothing to do with pressure. It has to do with timing. There's something about that time period when their antlers start hardening and stuff that they they just start shifting. Sometimes, you know, you can get on them. And And I know that there's been a few times when we've opened real early, like the 10th or something. And I always have way better odds than early season when we open thing. there's a change in the deer based on timing and uh that september first opener those states that have that man that's a that's a draw because those bucks are uh, a lot easier to kill in that first that first week of september
0: that's what i've been finding too i couldn't believe uh the amount of bucks that have been seeing in daylight early september on their feet it's it's very surprising coming from an october opener and a you know much higher pressure state it's been a game changer for for sure
1: right that's what I, I always laugh when um people from Michigan will tell me there's no such thing as an October lull and and I, I say well you know that's because you haven't hunted September <laughs> if you hunted you know early September and you hunted rut and you'd say yeah there's a, yeah. There's a early October lull
0: <laughs> yeah big difference for sure for, for me from October 1st to September well it's not always the first but the first week of September
1: Right. Another big thing about uh, early season is your odds are lower for numbers of bucks, seeing numbers of bucks, than say the rut. Right. Sure. However, if you go back and you look at my wall, if you take all the good deer off of it, and you just take the, the, like the, the top ten oldest bucks, I've shot more of them in early season than I have during the rut.
0: Well, that should tell people
1: listening something right there. Yeah, because. Those old bucks do not run around in a rut stupid. They're smart. and They've been hunted, and now they know it's game on. But in early season, they do walk around in daylight. They do move in daylight. And I've killed more ap- actual mature bucks when you get to that, like, five or six years old in the first week of the season than I have in the week of rut.
0: That's my plan for this year. Hopefully. We'll see. So the early season, we talked about this a little bit, but the weather. So even in michigan early september i'd see a lot of bucks in daylight when it's hot out hot weather so give me your opinion on how much the weather influences early season hunting and when do you think that there's a shift where obviously they start to grow winter coat and the temperature starts to matter and the pressure but what, what do you think that's been like in your experience
1: i don't know how to answer other than it um uh... You're going to have a lot of guys that will tell you never hunt when it's hot. There will be a lot of guys that say deer won't move when it's rain. There will be guys that say they don't move when it's windy. But the truth of the matter is they move all the time, and you just got to use your advantage of what you get out of the the weather. Like when it's hot, they're going to be near water. They're going to move right in that last half an hour. I actually see on a real hot day, right when that sun goes down, you get that that drop in temperature. After they've been sitting there in that heat all day, they jump up and they're moving around. And it goes against what everybody says, but I see it all the time.
0: No, it makes sense. And uh if you're seeing it then it's hard to argue with observation firsthand. That's that's my favorite source of intel.
1: you, you know a lot of it is. You, you know, when you talk to people and you read articles and stuff, it they tell you what they believe. They don't tell you what they actually seen. And I try to base everything that that I hunt based on on observations, not on what people told me or what I read or things like that I try to do it on what I see and I think that uh, that makes you a better hunter
0: yeah absolutely absolutely another early season topic that uh, this one doesn't get discussed a lot but I know from being well acquainted with your stories of shooting early season bucks over scrapes that that's possible and you're finding some of these scrapes already active and open ground pod and everything in September so I'd like you to talk about your experiences with early season bucks over scrapes and kind of like the whole setup where, where are those scrapes in relation to bedding and food and and what were your setups like?
1: Yeah. Whenever I've killed um, a big buck over a scrape in early season, the scrapes usually been within a hundred yards of a couple of bedding areas and both are active with good bucks and they're both competing with each other and they go to that scrape and they both work it every evening. They kind of like race to it. It's not too often you find that situation. You got to really be searching for it. But I have found it on a few occasions and had some real good success with it. My two biggest uh, bull bucks were shot on scrapes early season, within 100 yards of the veterinary and in both cases, multiple bucks were using that scrape in September. You know, so if you find a scrape within 100 yards of bedding uh, in September, I would say you should probably try to throw a stand over the top of it. But you want to do it the day you find it. So, both of my biggest bucks that I shot uh, over scrapes, I never went near the scrape. I glassed them. I watched them from a distance go to the scrape in the evenings. And there was always multiple bucks, and there'd be one and one to shoot. But anytime I've walked in there and hunted and tried it, it's kind of gone dead after that. You know, you get your one crack, basically.
0: Yeah. So, the only reason I knew about this, and this happened to me last year, is from reading your story. So, again, thanks. You taught me a ton. And I was kind of stumbling my way through a new piece of property and I ran into a scrape and it was fresh. And this was either the first or second weekend in September, like a fresh twisted licking branch. The ground was pot and everything. And then about as soon as I saw the scrape, I jumped like eight bucks out of an oxbow that were all bedded in there. <laughs> yeah. I set up my stand uh, that night and ended up killing, killing a nice white tail buck. So I was pretty pumped about that. Nice. Yeah, so that worked out. I think it is rare. And actually, I haven't hardly seen many scrapes at all in Montana. But that one, it was exactly like you described. They're multiple bucks. And the scrape was within probably 100, 150 yards of the bedding area. And now that I know that, I might very likely try that spot again this year. But knowing where it is and knowing where the bedding area is, I'll have a much better access plan this year. And hopefully, I won't spook them like I did last year. And I just got lucky and ended up working out, though. Great. And then one other thing, Dan, I want to talk about this too, because I have some friends that I know this has happened to them specifically. You talked about multiple bucks using an area early season, and I know everybody's familiar with the concept of bachelor group. So how do you know, or what do you do if you expect multiple bucks in an area? And I've read some of your stories about you passing like 130, 140 class deer early season because you know there's a bigger one in there. I guess, how did you mature enough to do that? And what's that
1: like for you? There's something in you that makes you really want to shoot a good buck when right it's in front of you. But I mean, if you know there's a real big one around and you hold out after that buck goes by, after you pass one like that, you feel really good about letting it go. Like it, there's uh it's almost like you shot one because you, um, you get this feeling of, um, uh, like, uh, you're proud that you did it. You know what I mean? And then, After that, it starts getting a lot easier. you know. There's nothing wrong with shooting a deer if you want to. If you don't want to, and shooting a smaller one later, you get the whole season going in front of you, you know, and if you think you got a chance at the big one, hold up for the big one. do it not happen later on, maybe you get a chance at the other one again, you know.
0: I mean, at least for me, this has been an early season-specific phenomenon because during the rut or the pre-rut, more often than not, it's one buck. Sometimes you see multiple, but... Usually it's just one buck that comes through, but in the early season on several occasions, I've had, you know, two, three, four-year-old, two-year-old bucks, and then a three-year-old buck come in behind all of those that if I would have shot one of those two-year-old bucks, I would have never saw that one to begin with. Right. I guess I'm targeting this comment towards people that don't have a lot of early season experience or new hunters that if you're trying to shoot something a little bit bigger than Sometimes it's worth a gamble because that, that bigger buck might be at the tail end of the train. Usually is, right?
1: Right. And, you know, if you're hunting two-year-olds, that's what you're pretty much get A lot easier to get a two-year-old than it is to get a three or four. You know, every year they got a, they got a more advanced way about them.
0: So one last thing on scrapes here. And uh, before I ask this question, I want to preface it with I've got absolutely no intention to stir anything up in case anyone's listening to this, but... I had John Eberhardt on the podcast a few episodes ago, and obviously John's killed a lot of deer. He's killed a lot of deer, a lot of his better bucks over scrapes. And he thinks or believes that scrapes are always placed in areas of high doe traffic. So two questions here. First, do you believe that why or why not? And then the second question is, and this might be the why not, is do you think a scrape like we were just talking about in early September – or mid-September, is different than a scrape you might find in late October or early November? Well,
1: I think um, scrapes, a lot like rubs, are tools for communication, and uh, they're not always meant for for does. Now, obviously, the ones that I was watching in uh, September, I've never seen a doe on them. The the ones that I shot those big bucks on, I just saw bucks. Buck after buck after buck come out of the bedding areas. There's not a doe bedding area anywhere around there's no reason for a dough to even be in there because there's no food in there for them. It's a secure bedding area, and the bucks come out, and they're marking that, and it's pretty obvious to me they're marking it for other bucks. There's some sort of communication between those bucks. I mean, they're not highly aggressive or anything. They might spar or something like that if they see each other, but it's not real aggressive. Um, but they'll come out, and they'll, um, they'll work that scrape, and there's kind of a dominance they're, they're establishing. And that scrape at that time, I can guarantee you, is for a buck now i do believe that there's scrapes like that in november too but in november the majority of them are going to be to track those um, but they also can be claiming a doe from a buck you know it's it's um kind of a marking like this is mine kind of thing you know obviously um anybody who thinks they know everything about them is crazy i don't know everything that's going on or or what they're thinking, or how, or, or what what's driving them to do it. I just know what I observe, and I and I observe that they use them for communication, for bucks and for does, for breeding. But they also use it to like claim an area or, or claim dominance or something. I mean, the the um, scrapes that you find uh, in September will be right where two buck trails cross, coming out of bedding. Okay. And seeing that, I mean, I don't see where that could have anything to do with a doe. And and I don't even think they're thinking about breeding at that time.
0: That's why I asked the question the way I did too. Like I said, not trying to stir anything up, just trying to understand. And, and a couple points on my end. One, John and I, we didn't talk about early season hunting at all. And I know he's a Michigan resident. So I'm assuming the bulk of his experience is after October 1st. What I saw last year was, um, you know, there were some does in the area but not a whole lot of them, but it was primarily bucks. And I know the stories that you've said, it's been mostly bucks. So maybe be something to keep in mind for people that are listening that the way I'm interpreting it or understanding it, a, a scrape in a betting type area, early season should definitely have somebody's attention, right? You'd agree there.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, no, I appreciate your, your insight on that. Cause I, I think that stuff's pretty interesting. Like you said, you don't run into it too often and that's the earliest I've ever found a scrape for sure. So if it wasn't for reading the stuff that you had out there and your experiences, I wouldn't probably wouldn't have known what to make of that. Well, we talked about scrapes, Dan. Let's talk about rubs early season. And I guess from what I know about deer biologically, velvet generally comes off sometime between the last week of August and the first two weeks of September. So when you're scouting early season, let's go back to like boots on the ground. The season's open. You're obviously you're out there and you notice everything or, or you're trying to pay attention to the details so you're looking for rubs, but what do those early season rubs tell you, if anything, when you find a fresh one in September?
1: Well, it tells you there's bucks around. And uh, I don't think they're traveling long distances at that time of the year. They're going from bed to food. So if the rub looks like it's off of a good deer, I think I'm in a good area. And I think that that bucks around someplace. So then I'm going to concentrate on the, the bedding that's nearby. So specifically, a lot of times... I'm, what I'll do is I'll check spots where I think they might be betting, and I'll slip in there. And if there's no rubs and no sign or something, I'll leave. But a lot of times that sign, when you do find it in uh, that opening week, here anyways, obviously you don't have no rubs September 1st and where you're at. Well, maybe you do. You got some deer that are probably hard antlered, but here most of them are hard antlered by the time the season opens. And uh, if you find rubs, you know they're nearby. So I'm looking for a higher rub and I'm looking in areas where I think that they're bedding in between the food and bedding. And then I don't necessarily go into the hunt area. I kind of look at the edge, the the food area. So I don't spook the area because I might want to come back and hunt that later on. So I kind of walk the field edge kind of thing and look at the sign going in and out. And uh, if there's sign, then I'll move in for the kill and I'll go in and I'll set up.
0: I think I know the answer to this, but I want to get your opinion. So, it seems to me the early season rubs like those September you know, 15th hard antler to October 15th, they're different. They're not as aggressive. They're not uh, usually – I'm just making generalizations here. Even a big buck, it's not like a deep, aggressive, big tree rub. So are you looking at height specifically uh, in the early season to give you an idea of a good buck?
1: Yeah, usually that's what I'm looking for regardless of, of time, time period. I'm looking for height. The, the biggest difference is you just get more clusters of them around uh, around does or bedding towards rut, but even that mature bucks are a different breed, and and this it depends on pressure, because I've been on ranches where it's the opposite, but usually like when I find a cluster of of decent rubs, like a lot of rubs around a bedding area, it's a two year old. The mature bucks just don't leave those clusters like that. They'll leave a rub here and there, um, along their travels, and they'll mark uh, crossings like we're full crossings are and stuff like that, whether it's rut or not. But early season, a lot of times, some of the rubs will just have a few scratches. They won't even be worn to the bark. I mean, um, so you got to look a little closer.
0: That's why I was bringing that up is because you're not necessarily not, I mean, again, go back to there's no always, but you're probably not going to see those really tall, uh, like shredded rubs.
1: You, you see some like that early season, but not not nearly as much as you do in October, open ring. Right. So I
0: guess pay attention more to, to the height and uh, proximity to bedding as opposed to the impressiveness of the rub.
1: Yeah. I like to look and see if they're tacky, like if they're kind of still bleeding, meaning that they've been down within a day or so. Okay. So I know that there's something coming through there on a regular basis, you know.
0: And then one last thing. And I guess I should ask this question a bit earlier. We were talking about bucks and passing bucks, multiple bucks coming out of an area. So sounds like you've had some experience with bigger bucks being in bachelor groups. What about, have you shot any your, been on any that were just straight loners even from early in the early season?
1: Yeah, a lot of them because um, where I hunt, there's not a lot of big bucks and they hang in their, their own age classes. So um, a lot of these bucks don't even have bachelor groups because they're by themselves. You know, you just shine them alone, you, you get pictures of them alone, even during the summer. Not always. I mean, some of them do, some of them don't, and the bigger ones seem to break up faster. And last
0: question on that: bachelor groups versus the loners. If you know a deer is uh, with a group or a loner specifically, based on your observations leading up to the season, does that impact your approach to hunting that deer at all?
1: Yeah, a little bit. Um, the bachelor groups seem to bed more like those. They're in the same areas, but they kind of come up out of the uh, out of the the primary bedding areas with the you know good backdrop off the point and stuff where the does would be where you're generally setting up and kicking does out when you're setting up um you'll see the um batch groups bed up in those areas when they're groups kind of like does do circle formation i want to restate that so i understand
0: so let's assume you're hunting a, a swamp point and later on in the season if you thought there was a buck out there he might be bedded off the point in the red brush or whatever but if I'm understanding correctly, the the bachelor group might be right on the end of the point, as opposed to end of the the brushmore. Is that what you're saying?
1: So, um, you ever go hunt on a point and you know buck beds off of the point, and you walk in there, those jump up right in the middle of the point, kind of. Yep. You ever have that happen? Oh yeah. I think most people have, right? Yep. Well, the those are bedded there because they're bedded in a circle, all watching a different direction, and they're using each other to help. And bucks will kind of do that during bed, when are bachelor bedding. Okay they'll bed it as a group further out.
0: That makes sense.
1: At least that's what I've observed. I don't see that as much because uh, I don't open September 1st and I kind of stay out of their bedding areas. But when I have seen bachelor groups and jump bachelor groups in the woods, that's what I've observed. And you go over and you see the beds kind of like in doe formation. And in the same regard, you see those beds like pucks winter long. are uh, long. You see them bed riding. You know, I've had cameras over buck beds and, you know, randomly all in a doe's bed and in the bed bedding there for a day they'll bed right in the buck beds when they're alone. And bucks as groups, it seems to me bed a little more like those do, maybe not as much, but they do come up a little higher and stuff. And some of that maybe falls into less pressure at that time of year and they gotta be kinda pushed into those locked in spots,
0: you know. Right, those more secure locations. Yeah. That just sparked a question, and now this happened to me several years ago, probably 2016. I got access to a property in the summer, so I didn't have time. This was private land, so I didn't have time to scout it prior to the, the summer, you know, in the, the winter or the spring like I would have liked to. So I went in the summer, and I found an area that had a bunch of beds that I just instantly assumed was doe beds. And then the first time I hunted that property, it was October 1st or early on in October, a group of like seven or eight bucks came out of that. What I thought was dough bedding. So looking back on that now, let's say that was you in that situation. Was there anything that I could have done that would have might've, have, might've have clued me in that that was actually a bachelor group bedding there as opposed to dough beds in, in the summer?
1: Probably nothing more than an observation. You probably have to see it. Okay. I mean, um, I get fooled by that stuff too. I mean, it's not like a, like a magic or something. <laughs> sure. I've had some really good bedding that I found. I can remember this. This isn't that long ago, like seven years ago or eight years ago or something. I stumbled in some really good bedding. I'm like, okay, this is where they're hiding and stuff. And I hunted it and hunted it and hunted it. And I just could not ever see or get it cracked. These boxes, like those beds, were being used so much it had to be there. And I and there were several of them that were like that. And I started thinking back about all these past ones that were like that. And it intrigued me, and I put a camera over over a few of them when I was done hunting, when I tagged out. And was shocked to find out they were night beds, because they were set up just like day beds, but these bucks were coming in there, they bedding at night. You know, some of that stuff you have to learn with a camera or something, or, or an observation. And then on a property, it seems to repeat itself. But then again, I mean, if bucks bed like those when they're in groups, it might have been a doe bed in there, and they're just better in there. So maybe it takes more than one opera observation to really know for sure.
0: Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. Hard to say with my limited Intel there. I had one firsthand sighting, and, and that was about it. What you just mentioned about uh, the cameras and learning about the night beds, that's a perfect segue into my next question is, are you using trail cameras early season? Uh, why or why not? And then as a follow-up to that, so are you using them? Why or why not? And if you are using them, what kind of Intel are you trying to gather? Are you looking – or uh, inventory, or are you looking for something more tactical
1: there? I use uh, trail cameras more for inventory or for to learn stuff for the future, like to learn what's going on in a spot. Um, they're hard to get in time to kill intel without burning a spot. But I do use occasionally cell cams for getting kill intel. So I'll put them like, uh, on an island that has bedding off the points And a deer showing up there in daylight, I know he's bedding off one of the points and I try to move him for the kill when I see him. I'll put a trail camera over a small little food plot on Dave's farm and just see what happens for the whole year and learn what time periods those deer come because it repeats itself every year. Like there's a food plot on Dave's farm that um, we put in right adjacent to this bedding area that uh, I killed a lot of bucks there before it was even a food plot. We put this food plot right in the tangle and then we just stay away, observe it from a distance. I mean, it's a tiny clover plot that's 20 feet across in the middle of a thick, nasty dogwood area with a, a area adjacent to it.
0: That's the one where you ran into uh, the 10-point that Dave ended up killing, right?
1: Correct, yep. correct. Yep, that was a good video. So anyways, uh, uh, we'd just sit back, we'd observe that and stuff moving for a kill when we see him. But when I put a trail camera in there, what I learned, you know, is, Looking at my kills, they were always in mid-October, mid to late October. And when we put a trail camera in there, sure enough, there's never a good buck there until that time period. There's like a two-week period when that's a hot, hot, spot. You know, they start coming in there around there and rut and stuff and corral the does in that corner. And uh, I didn't know that. I thought it would be an early season spot. So other uh, cameras teach you things.
0: I was just going to say it goes to show and they gets talked about on the beast a lot is that timing, especially spot specific timing can be huge because I can think back to three or four spots. I hunted there were, you know, one was only good early season. One's only good during the pre-rut. One's only good when they're full on rut. So it's uh, right. like you said, you can use cameras, you can use your observation, but it's really important. Even if it's just mentally to keep notes of that type of stuff to, I think that's, and we talked about this in the first podcast, that's the marathon type approach that starts getting you consistent success as you gain intel over these spots over the years because then you know, oh, spot A is only good then, spot B is only good then, and when you start stacking up a bunch of good spots with good timing, that's when you really start getting things done, I think. Great. One more thing on trail cameras. So let's assume that you weren't as busy as you are and that you just had infinite money. And what would your ideal or optimal early season trail camera strategy look like? I guess let's not say infinite money, but let's say you had 10 or 15 cell cams. What, how would you use those and what would you do?
1: I would probably take the time to go and drop them in random swamps all over the place. Not necessarily the ones that I'm hunting already and know, which I think is a mistake people to make. They put a camera where they're already going to hunt. They know they're going to hunt there. That's not to say you don't want in, 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 intel on uh, what's living there. But a lot of these people already know what's living there, and they just get like, addicted to pictures or something. I would put them in new swamps all over the place. I know a fella that's a, a beast member, and I don't want to call him out because I don't know if he wants people to know this. Um, but he drops cameras in uh, swamps, not only in Wisconsin, but all across the Midwest. and you can just buy a tag over the counter. And then he just monitors the cameras and uh, goes to wherever the biggest bucks are. And he, he does quite well.
0: Oh, I, I'd imagine that sounds like a pretty effective strategy.
1: Uh, and, and I'd probably do something similar. It's just a matter of, uh, there's only so much time in this world and I work for a living.
0: Sure. Getting ready to wrap this up. I said I would only keep you an hour and right, right in an hour. So two more questions. So I told you I'm still new to September hunting. And knowing that, what would you tell a guy in my position or a guy who lives in the state with an October 1st or later opener Who's thinking about going on their first out-of-state hunt to a early season opener, like Kentucky or North Dakota, where you got a September first opener? What would you be your top two or three tips for someone in that situation to get, you know, up their odds of success?
1: I would say I'd I'd want to find out if there's acorns dropping there. I'd contact somebody from that area and find out if there's acorns. I'd probably try and look for uh, areas with isolated acorns, like swamps or something, where you can. Uh, They're not bedding in the acorns. Uh, I think acorns are are a huge tool for killing them, but they can also be a problem if they're in uh, hills. So if there's no acorns, uh, I would probably concentrate on areas that are um, adjacent to crops or something. I'd just go in there and dive in and do a lot of walking. I don't think I would sit back in predetermined spots based on maps. I think I would uh, look at spots on maps, but I'd do a lot of walking. And I'd spend the day walking, and I'd, I'd go back and hunt whatever spot looked the hottest, and then I'd creep into for the kill. And I'd repeat that uh, every day. I think I wouldn't hunt mornings. I would just hunt evenings, and I'd spend the whole morning into the afternoon scouting and then hunt the best spot. Okay. That's good
0: insight for sure. And then last question, Dan. The early season hunting, it's not too bad in Montana. When are we going to see Dan tackle the west?
1: Oh, is that an invite?
0: <laughs> yeah. You'll have to buy a preference point, and those are still available right now. Then you could probably get a tag okay. next year, if not the following year. I know a place you might be able to stay real cheap. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you might see me over there. I, I have hunted Montana, but it's been many, many years, and I hunted on a ranch. Okay. I
0: didn't I uh, didn't know
1: that. Where'd I want to you... hunt.
0: Where, uh, whereabouts in the state, you remember?
1: I probably know if I heard it. Um. I mean we're talking when I was like in my early 20s I shot a real big eight pointer won a big contest and first prize I got to pick between uh, an elk hunt a whitetail hunt or uh, a pronghorn hunt and uh, being an idiot kid addicted to deer I chose whitetail Montana (laughs) river bottoms yeah (laughs) but uh, yeah it was like uh, at the base of the mountains but it was all Flat river bottom. Hmm.
0: Well, that could be a, one of several locations. I'm not exactly sure. What about uh, what about mule deer? Have you ever hunted mule deer? Any interest in that?
1: So on that trip, my um my tag was good for mule deer or a white tail, and uh, I came up on one driving down a mule deer driving down the street, or not driving to the ranch. You want to call it a street because the, the the driveway to the guy's ranch house is like. 10 miles long. <laughs> I come around this corner and there's this uh, mule deer standing out in the open looking at me. And I got out of the car and uh, I got my bow out and it took like 10 steps to it and I figured it was 40 yards and I put the 40 yard pin on it and watched the arrow hit the dirt about six feet from it. I paced it off. He's like sixty-two yards. <laughs> it's uh,
0: that's one of the hard lessons I've learned out here. It's very hard to judge distance with no landmarks because you'll find those deer with no trees and a lot of times, and you're like, oh yeah, that's sixty yards, and then you range it. And it's like ninety-five.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I saw a real big mule deer on that hunt too, but I've never really seriously gone after them. I've never
0: ever done it. All right. Well, after uh, after we wrap up here, I'll have to give you the in- info to get a preference point and. Maybe next year you can try to draw a tag.
1: Okay.
0: Be fun. All right. Well, hey, Dan, uh, appreciate you coming on. As always, a lot of good insight here today and taking the time. So looking forward to following along with you this season, and I'm sure we'll be in touch. Good luck and stay safe out there.
1: All right. Good luck to you and everybody else listening.
0: All right, Dan. Thanks. Take care.